You see in your bulletin that the sermon title is Gluttony versus Blessed are those who are persecuted. Let's begin. What do you think is the most gluttonous day on the annual calendar? What would that be? Yeah. Somebody might say New Year's, possibly. Maybe they would say Christmas, but surely at the very top of the list, it has to be the holiday celebration of Thanksgiving. And really, who among us has not pushed away from the Thanksgiving table and having done so groaned and had to loosen up a a notch on their own belt? That's happened before. And you kind of sleepwalk your way into the kitchen to do whatever dirty dishes need to be cleaned. And and after that, you make your retreat to the living room sofa where you proceed to sleep through the rest of the Detroit Lions or Dallas Cowboys game, right? The definition given in Webster, gluttony is the immoderate consumption of food or drink. Certainly Thanksgiving would seem to fall under that category. But all feasts fall under that category. And you probably know that the Bible is is certainly very pro-feasting. God put numerous feasts on the Israelites' calendar. During certain times of the year, they were expected to celebrate festivals. And those events, those feasts, could last as long as a week. So seven days of luxurious food and drink. And from what I gather when I read about Middle Eastern cultures is that they tend to be very celebratory in nature. So their wedding celebrations, like in Jesus' day, might last for as long as 72 hours. You go to John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. Apparently that celebration lasted at least as long uh, as the wine cellar <laughs> lasted until it ran out. And, and Jesus is called in to save the day. So what's the difference between gluttony and feasting? The difference is that gluttony is, is about the food. Feasting is about the people. The people around the table. The celebration of God's goodness to us as we recounted over the past year. The humorous, silly stories that get told and the laughter and all of that, the prayers that are said, the joining together around the food. Um, Gluttony, as I understand it, is not so much the immoderate consumption of food, but it, it is in its essence, for lack of a better term, selfish food. It is food that gets divorced from the communal put it another way. It is food for me, for my needs, for right now. It is when we pursue food solely or primarily for the purpose of self-gratification. And that's where I think that the dictionary definition is insufficient, because it's not primarily about portion sizes, although that is a component, but it's far more an an attitude (sighs) a selfish attitude toward the food. Well, if you look at Thanksgiving through that lens, then you realize that it may be actually the least gluttonous day of the year because it is food shared together with other people celebrating the goodness of God, the communal celebration of our Lord that takes 
center stage. With that, we'll go to Proverbs 23, verse 19. Listen, my son, and be wise, and set your heart on the right path. Do not join with those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat. For drunkards and gluttons become poor, and drowsiness clothes them in rags. What's described here is described elsewhere in the Proverbs. This is this habitual, selfish eating that you either spend too much or you spend, spend too much money or too much time on your food or have too many hangovers as a result of your food and it leads you down the road into, into poverty. But it's a selfish eating. Why does that man go to the bar? It's to drink his sorrows away. Why does that woman engage in, in binge eating? It is to calm her anxieties. Why does that teenager become bulimic? It's because she craves the comfort of the taste and fears its accompanying results. Then I chose Matthew eleven eighteen. One of these passages where Jesus says, he says it's almost like I'm damned if I do, I'm damned if I don't. He's, he's responding to the, his religious leader critics. And for John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and, and you say, they say, that he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating, eating and drinking, and, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And we, we know that surely that was a false, slanderous association made on our Lord. But isn't it interesting that Jesus more than likely had to frequent enough celebratory meals in order for, for something like this to ever stick? The celebratory Jesus is not the picture that most people have of him, and yet uh, that may very well be in the background here. Then our beatitude. We've been working through the seven deadly sins, and the counterpoint beatitude today's is the last of them. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If gluttony is a selfish lack of self-control and selfish gratification of food, and Paul, at one point, you may recall, he criticizes opponents by saying that their God is their stomach. If gluttony is, is the God of the stomach or the God of the self, the blessed life is one that lives for something far bigger. And you know that it takes a tremendous amount of dedication, determination, discipline, patience to overcome the evil one that we just spoke about in, in the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, and it just so happens that if you cannot overcome the refrigerator, um, the, the implication is how, do you, how are you ever going to overcome the forces of evil that are arrayed against you? Let's buy the lamb. We'll get to that at the end. Misconception number one. Thanksgiving is the day of American gluttony. Not for us as Christians, because our Lord is the Lord of the feast. Misconception number two. I mean, this one is pretty common. It goes like this. Fat people are gluttonous. Skinny people are not. 
I would imagine that with the advances of modern nutrition and, and all of that, that, that fewer and fewer people buy into misconception. Number two, you've probably read the same studies that I have read that genetics play a tremendous role in whatever equilibrium body weight that we, we achieve. I've, I've heard that, it, that it's like 70% genetics, statistically speaking, whatever that means. Statistics. <laughs> what do they mean? 70% genetics. And that if some people, if they virtually starve themselves biologically, it would nearly be impossible for them to drop 30 pounds. Okay, we probably agree. But we wouldn't want to go to the opposite extreme and say that, frankly, you know, American obesity, which is epidemic in its proportions, um, has, has nothing to do with self-control. Be- because it, it does. I am six foot two. As of this morning, I weigh 177 pounds. I have have always had a pretty lean um, body type. My body mass index is is right in the the normal scale right now, and uh, I can ad- admit to you, unfortunately, admit to you that I am a glutton. And I was amazed this week as I studied all of the myriad of different ways that I selfishly pursue food and all these behaviors that have, have become habituated that I wouldn't think twice about, but upon further inspection and inspection through the lens of this definition, I, I was amazed by it. And I wanna, I'll share a couple of those for the, for the sake of, um, of you, of exposing your own. As a fam- our family, we've got five kids. We don't eat out a lot. You, know, you can't eat out a lot um, on a pastor's salary and, and five kids. But when we do, you can imagine that leftovers are very coveted. <laughs> and when we come home from the restaurant in the evening, maybe Aaron and I went out on a date together, and we put the leftovers in the fridge and, and warn off the ravenous wolves that, <laughs> that prowl about. I'm fortunate because I'm the first one up in the family. I love an early wake-up time. And whenever there are leftovers in the fridge, first thing I do is, is go to it and, and gobble them all up so that nobody else will, will get a taste of it. And it doesn't even matter if they are my leftovers. <laughs> you know, I head straight to the fridge. Before I even drink my morning cup of coffee, which that, I mean, that's almost sacrilege to do something before morning coffee. But, and I, I've justified the behavior along the lines of the early bird gets the worm. Or, you know, if it's in the fridge, it's fair game. Or, I'm the man of the family. Uh, I probably paid for that food. You know, I have higher caloric intake needs than everybody else. I, I have a more stressful job than, than they do. And I'm not actively thinking those things, but they are, upon further inspection, part of, of my uh, unconscious processing. And that is a classic example of selfish food. Um, I think I told you I grew up in a home where we ate a lot of TV dinners. 
I mean, even TV dinner breakfasts, where, I mean, you, you put it in the microwave and you get the rubbery French toast and, and um, the eggs. We would do that, and I spent, a, I spent a lot of my time eating standing up and eating on the run. We were a family that went to church on Sundays, and we would have a relatively special meal after church. But even that meal... It was in Arizona, and so it involved a lot of chips and queso and all, all manner of kind of finger food type of... And even that meal, we would... It would normally be eaten standing up. So that even today, it's a supreme challenge for me to sit down and share a meal. What I engage in is utilitarian eating. I consume the, ima- the maximum amount of food in the shortest... Im- amount of time and in the most comfortable posture that, that I can gather, which is standing up. The way that this is translated in my life, in addition to not having nearly enough family meals together, you know, Chick-fil-A moved to Boise about a little over a year ago. I grew up, uh, my family's from Atlanta, Chick-fil-A started in Atlanta. I'm a big Chick-fil-A fan. Every, every Christmas, we bought the kids the cow calendars, which come with a little redeemable card or voucher. You can take it in each month and receive some free food. So every month, our, uh, Aaron takes the kids to Chick-fil-A to redeem, to redeem their food. Every month, Aaron will ask me, you want to come with us? Every month, I will say no. I would, I would rather stay at the house and, and work or read or do my thing, but you can bring me home a sandwich. You get my food and bring it back to me so that I can eat it uh, in my own privacy, quickly and, and privately, and in, in my own little world of, of solitude. So it's selfish food. It's it's non-communal food. It's non. God praised food. I, I've kind of gone to the other end of the spectrum. I don't want to be legalistic, and the Bible doesn't tell me that I need to pray over every meal. And so I've gone to the other end of the spectrum of, of how many meals do I even pray over now? And and when I do pray over them, just like you, a lot of those those thank you for the food prayers are are lame in in their articulation and in their heart. Selfish food, non-communal food, non-God-praised food, self-gratification food. Have you ever reached the end of the day, you're counting down the minutes until the kids go to bed so that you can secretly you know, head off to your dessert stash and grab that hidden carton of ice cream so that you can go back to the, to the sofa and just eat every bite of it in, in peaceful solitude and bliss. Other symptoms. Do you shovel your food? There, there are indicative phrases that we use that tell us something. Um, shovel your food, stuff your face, eat like a pig. All of those say something. They tell us that gluttony, what it does is it causes us to approach our food like animals. So just like lust approaches sex like an animal and pornography approaches sex like an animal. Well, gluttony approaches food like an animal. 
like my Labrador retriever, <laughs> who doesn't even chew. And she just gulps. She has no table manners. She, she gulps so much, she gulps air. And so every time she finishes her, her morning meal, she comes and belches in the living room. Yeah, animals, when they eat, there's no, no health or social aspects um, to that eating. They, they would choke to death if they were, if God didn't miraculously keep, them, keep that from happening. If, if God were to give dogs the ability to talk out loud, they wouldn't you know, over their food bowl. There would be not an ounce of conversation. They're just, just ravenous wolves, which, sadly, describes the way that a number of, of people actually eat, doesn't it? Animals don't share their food. <laughs> animals have a really hard time with, with someone sticking their plate or their fork in onto their plate. Um, what are some other symptoms that, that come to mind? Here, an author writes, a, Ni- a Nigerian student of mine described his family's custom, presumably from Nigeria, inherited... The eldest child in those families would be served first and given the largest helping. But that child was expected to eat slowly, for if a younger child who finished first was still hungry with their lesser portion, then the younger child would be served seconds off of the eldest child's plate. So the eldest child's eating was thus always disciplined by and responsive to the needs of others eating with him or her. Another symptom. Have you ever found yourself looking forward to a social event that is on your calendar, but you're looking forward to it not so much because you, you're really excited to spend time with the people, but because, you, because you're looking forward to the buffet that's going to be served, because you're looking forward to the, the free alcohol or the... Um, you know that the people that are throwing this event are going to lay out a pretty great uh, spread. Um, and, and you are going to, in, in your dreams, eat until your heart's content. Now, what a phrase is that? Those are some that I think are, are less obvious. More obvious would be this term that we have of comfort food comfort food is when you and I raid the pantry or raid the fridge to cure our loneliness. It's like we're going to eat something that's going to fill up our disappointments, our loneliness. We're going to cure our self, self-loathing. self We're going to calm our nerves. Um, when food was never meant to do that. Now, God did provide us a comforter in the Holy Spirit. But he never expected food to, to do or be that for us. The last one I came up with in screw tape letters, Wormwood, the demon, he complains that trying to tempt people to, toward gluttony, it just doesn't work anymore these days because everybody knows that eating too much is wrong. At least that's what everybody knew in, in Lewis's day in Britain. Certainly not what everybody knows in, in America today. But Uncle, Uncle Screwtape comes to him and says, you know what, actually... We've changed our tactics. We've moved away from the gluttony of excess into the gluttony 
of delicacy. He says, here's a woman who is an absolute terror to her hostess and servants, for she always turns from what has been offered to her and says with a little demure uh, sigh and a smile, oh, please, please, all I want is a cup of tea, weak but not too weak, and the teeny-weeniest bit of really crisp toast. <laughs> you see, Wormwood, Screwtape continues, because what she wants is smaller and less costly than what has been set before her. She never recognizes this as gluttony. Uh, she never recognizes that her determination to get what she wants, however troublesome it may be to others, is, is she never recognizes that she is, an, she is in a all-I-want state of mind. Yeah, have you ever entertained a guest for dinner for whom nothing is ever quite right or who makes half a dozen special requests about their food? Somebody, you're out at a restaurant and they send, they have a habit of sending their plate back to the, the kitchen, sometimes not even once, but twice. Well, at this point, it's very possible that I've given off the wrong impression as though food should not be gratifying. It should not be enjoyed. Of course, that's not, that's not, I'm not saying that. Food testifies to the boundless creativity of our, our maker. You think of the millions of variations of cheese that exist. What science has shown to us about the, the chemical complexities of wines that are out there, and, and so on. You know, obviously, God didn't have to make a world where food was quite so <clears throat> intoxicating. He didn't have to give us French chefs, but, uh, you know, all food could be gray and, and taste like cardboard, like it does in England, or so I've been told. But you remember that some of the very, the very first words God spoke to Adam in the garden was, eat and drink and delight in this entire place, bar one little tree. Uh, delight in it. I mean, there's a garden. Imagine you know, all the produce. Not only does God want us to find food tasty and pleasurable, I thought this is interesting. He also wants us to experience the satisfaction of being full. The satisfaction of reaching that point where, you're, where your stomach does say, that is enough and I'm satisfied. He did not make food to be chewed and munched on or sucked on or uh, tasted for a few minutes and then spit out or vomited out. He, uh, that's part of the disorder of, of uh, bulimia, for instance, is, is he meant it so that it would truly satisfy and nourish you that you would experience all the pleasure of its nourishment in fullness. The reason I've tried not to focus on portion sizes so much is, is because what really matters is the, what motivates my eating. Am I eating for myself? And am I eating mindlessly? Because I think that's how that would characterize the great majority of, of our eating habits. Here's how, imagine, imagine this, that you, that you ate all of your meals for the next week 
conscious of the fact that something had to die to give you that life that you're about to ingest. Because that's how it works, isn't it? I mean, it is a dead head of lettuce, a, a dead tomato off the vine, a dead, dead furry cow. <laughs> uh, that is, your hamburger is, is nothing but dead things. It, I think it would be so much more meaningful in lieu of our typical prayers of, you know, thank you, God, for the daily bread, to say to him, Lord, in eating this, I acknowledge the sacrifice that has been made here, that this food died for me to live, that my life is possible only because another life form was lost. And in so doing, you, you relish the beautiful picture of Christ every time that you take a bite into your food. Not selfish food, God-praised food. I think it it would also help us tremendously to consider when we eat, that we ought not to eat. We ought not to eat to live. We ought to eat. I am eating in order to serve my Lord and my God. I am ingesting this bite in order that I would have the energy and the fuel to give my life in service to you, Lord, and in service to other people. Like that, in your own prayer life, over your food, you've you, you can inoculate yourself to a certain degree over, over a selfish, me-centered eating when you acknowledge that this food is for the purpose uh, of me to serve others. And you acknowledge it out loud. You pray it back to him. This, God, I praise you and I thank you that this is going to strengthen me for the day's race, that I might serve you. Um, and I, I think that that would be so much more meaningful than our typical way of eating our meals. My final point is that gluttony is normally considered the, the least significant of the set of seven deadly sins. In fact, people wonder, I mean, why would you even consider this as one of the capital vices of, of the moral world? And here's why. And it makes sense. If you are unable to control your eating habits, then you're probably unable to control much of, much of anything else. Your mental habits, your lust, your covetousness, your anger. You're un- unable to control your tongue to keep your mouth from gossip or strife. You, if you're not able to keep food from being all about you, then, I mean, what else won't be about you? So, uh, somebody said that it's like a, a black diamond. You, you hold up, the seven deadly sins are like a black diamond. And you look at, at facet number one, and you see into the diamond from that direction. And you look into facet number two, and you, you see. But each facet, all the facets are really doing is showing you a gateway into the, the deep heart of darkness that is the center of all of these sins, which was the very first sermon, the the Sermon on Pride. And if you cannot control your eating habits, as I said at the, the beginning, beginning today, um, how, are you, how are you ever going to endure hardship or persecution, which will require enormous self-discipline and perseverance? If you can't say no to yourself in the small and daily matters, then you're not going to be able to uh, 
uh, foist up the energy when the really great matters that you should and ought and must do, must do for the sake of, of spiritual life. Gluttonous eating makes us spiritually flabby. Gluttonous eating puts us, makes us liable to tremendous temptation. Maybe, maybe you think this is a, a bad example of it, but Esau, he sold his birthright for what? A pot of stew, right? His entire spiritual inheritance, he, he throws away. Um, Edmund, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he becomes addicted to the witch's Turkish delight. The, the witch says, the witch knew that when this delicacy was tasted, the person would want more and more and would, even if allowed, go on eating till they killed themselves. And I think that is the, the devil's design, is just eat. You probably won't eat yourself till you kill yourself, but you will eat yourself so, you'll eat so selfishly that, that it'll kill all spiritual vitality inside of you. So what then? Well, we fix our eyes on Jesus. Every sermon goes back to that, right? <laughs> Hebrews chapter 12. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the, the author and perfecter of your faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. How did Jesus do it? How did he overcome what we're going to celebrate in a couple of weeks' time? How did he overcome the deep-seated human instinct towards self-preservation? And um, how did he make it through Gethsemane? How did he endure the greatest level of persecution for the sake of righteousness? By going to the cross, bearing the... He did it not merely by saying no to my sin and yes to self-control. He did it for the joy. That's what Hebrews says. It was for who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Yes, you need to make yourself stronger by just simple self-denial. Yes, the Christian life is a life of self-denial. And it, it is in saying enough, no, uh, not today, no, that, that you build up spiritual strength and muscle. But so much more is the promise of joy that we receive every Lord's Day around this table. Because it's joy that is promised to us here. If you look at this sermon questions, there are number three. I use the example of number three of sitting down to a delicious meal. But as you're doing so, the hostess tells you that an even more delicious sweet is going to be served as soon as that meal has ended. What do you say when you're promised something like that? You say, I am saving room for dessert. It is the promise of something greater that keeps us resolute in our difficult moderation. And that is what happens. Jesus promises that the marriage feast of the Lamb, if you have your Bibles and want to meditate on it, it is in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. The, the Lord's Supper is a precursor to the, the banquet of all banquets and all of the festivals and celebrations the luxurious food and drink of seven days in Israel's calendar will be, what, 70 uh, billion days that are, are yet to come. And that is what I want you to meditate on. Meditate on the joy that is set before you.